Hey, if you need new sunglasses, if you would like to get new sunglasses, know that Shady Rays, for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast, is offering a fantastic deal. 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses at ShadyRays.com. Go to ShadyRays.com and use this promo code Al Galdi. Shady Rays sunglasses, they are the best. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses. No questions asked. Wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. Go to ShadyRays.com and use that code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Yeah, 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you don't love them, you can exchange them for sunglasses that you do love, or you can return your sunglasses for a full refund within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Shady Rays always has your back. Go to ShadyRays.com and use that code Al Galdi for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. And away we go, episode 559 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, April 27th, 2023. It is the day of the first round of the 2023 NFL Draft. After months of hype and buildup and conversation and reports and rumors and mock drafts, we finally have arrived at the day of the first round of the 2023 NFL Draft. The Commanders on Thursday night have the number 16 overall pick. The official Goldie prediction for that pick is that the Commanders trade down in the first round and take Mississippi State corner Emmanuel Forbes. That's my prediction. I want the commanders to trade down. I am predicting that they trade down. Oh, sure, I could predict what many, if not most, are predicting an offensive lineman at 16. And hey, that may well happen. But how about we have some fun with our prediction? Why the heck not? Uh, Assuming that the commanders do make a pick in the first round, how will we look back on that pick? When NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell steps to the podium on Thursday night to announce the commander's first round pick, will that be an announcement that we look back upon with pride or shame? Take you back to 2016. With the 22nd pick in the 2016 NFL Draft, the Washington Redskins select Josh Doxson, wide receiver... TCU. <laughs> yes, receiver Josh Doxson, not so good. But then how about what happened in the following year's draft, the 2017 draft? With the 17th pick in the 2017 NFL draft, the Washington Redskins select Jonathan Allen, defensive end, Alabama. There you go. Interior defensive lineman Jonathan Allen, quite good. That's the kind of pick that we need. 
from the Commanders with their first round pick on Thursday night. Whatever they do, whoever they pick, we need someone or something that we look back upon with pride, not shame. Hello and welcome to this Thursday first round of the NFL Draft preview installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Big announcement for a third time in three years since I started this podcast in February 2021. I will be doing an oh-so-special, oh-so-rare weekend installment of the podcast this NFL Draft weekend. Yes, I said weekend installment of the pod. This podcast, the only Washington, D.C. area sports podcast or show for which there is a new episode each weekday, Monday through Friday, with each episode out oh so early each weekday morning. Well, we this weekend will be having a special Sunday installment of the pod, recapping whatever the commanders do in rounds two through seven of the draft on Friday night and Saturday. So Friday's show will recap whatever the commanders do in the first round of the draft on Thursday night. This special Sunday show will recap whatever the commanders do in rounds two through seven of the draft on Friday night and Saturday. But when it comes to this show, what you're listening to right now, uh, oh, <laughs> do we have a lot to discuss. Next segment, I will react to the big commanders news on Wednesday morning. The team reportedly is not exercising the fifth-year option in the rookie contract of edge defender Chase Young. You know, we just had some scheduled fun (laughs) with Josh Doxson and John Allen. How are we going to look back upon the team having spent the number two overall pick in the 2020 draft on Chase Young? Because I can tell you this, three years ago when the team drafted him with that number two overall pick, the thinking most certainly was not that the team would not be exercising the fifth-year option in his rookie contract. There is a lot to get into with this Chase Young situation. Get into it, I shall, next segment. By the way, I know that there is talk of the commanders perhaps now trading Chase Young this offseason. I would just say this to that. The commanders in trading him this offseason would be trading him at his absolute lowest value point. Now is not the time to trade him. If you really want to trade him, Hope that he plays well this coming season and then trade him during the season or next offseason when you could tag and trade him. Trading him now for pennies on the dollar would be horrendous asset management. But yeah, next segment, the Chase Young situation. And then I'm going to welcome on a good guest, Brian Burke of ESPN Analytics. He's going to tell us what two things he has been instrumental in developing, ESPN's Draft Day Predictor and ESPN's NFL Draft Simulator, have to say about what the commanders will do in the 2023 draft. And Brian is going to talk commanders with us through the prism of some of the many advanced stats that Brian has created or at the very least helped to develop. Brian Burke is one of the founding fathers of football analytics. You know, air yards, Brian created that. You know, expected points added or EPA, Brian created that. You know, win rates, Brian created that. You know, win probability, Brian created that. You know, ESPN's total QBR, Brian was key in the development of that. Uh, Brian was advocating that NFL teams should be going for it on fourth downs far more often than teams were going for it on fourth downs years ago, long before advocating such a thing 
was fashionable. Uh, Brian Burke of ESPN Analytics is coming up in a bit. Also on the show, the Nationals, a.k.a. the boys. I'm proud of the boys. <laughs> That's right. Nats manager, Davey Martinez, proud of the boys who have won the first two games of a three-game series at the New York Mets. Wednesday night, a 4-1 win as starting pitcher Mackenzie Gore had his way with the Mets. One run in six innings, 10 strikeouts. Uh, There is a lot to talk about with this Nats win. Gore leads the way, but I have a proper Nats segment for you. And I will talk Orioles. Uh, They on Wednesday afternoon won for the 12th time in 15 games, the birds are hot. A 6-2 win over the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards behind a good start from Tyler Wells and yet another lockdown game from the Orioles bullpen as reliever Yanir Cano made Orioles history. The Cano show has been quite the show for the O's. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Rich on the sale of the commanders and on what sure seem to be the final days of Dan Snyder as owner of the team, writes Rich. I never thought that the old football team would rid itself of the cancer known as Bruce Allen. Now on the cusp of Snyder selling the team, I feel strongly that there's one more person who needs to go. Can we please, finally, for the love of all things holy, cut Troy Apke? (laughs) I'm sure that he's a nice guy and all. It's nothing personal, but Apke represents a fallen franchise with a roster weak enough to keep around a guy like Troy. Seeing Troy hang on reminds me of countless less than mediocre players. Let's put all of this behind us. (laughs) Thank you for the email, Rich. You know, I wonder how many people listening even knew that corner Troy Apke still is on the team. He is. Uh, Apke, over the last year, has been cut and brought back by the Commanders a bunch. Since the start of August 2022, the Commanders have released Apke three times, and yet he's still on the team. Uh, The Commanders this past January 9th announced the signings of nine players to what are called reserve slash future contracts, including, yes, Troy Apke, a.k.a. Trap. Uh, Troy Apke is a survivor, man. He's like the cockroach still crawling around Earth after the apocalypse. You know, there's actually something to be said for that. Perhaps we should be admiring Troy Apke. Perhaps we should be admiring Trap. Email from Yassine on the Nationals' ownership situation or for conversation on Wednesday's show, episode 558, about the Nats' big win on Tuesday morning in the Masson dispute, and also off what we talked about on last Thursday's show, episode 554, the Washington Post on April 19th, reporting that Wizards and Capitals owner Ted Leonsis, quote, offered more than $2 billion to buy the Washington Nationals from the Lerner family late last year, according to three people with knowledge of the situation. It's not clear whether the Lerners rejected the offer or simply did not respond to it. The one person with direct knowledge of the process says the two parties have remained in touch. And quote, uh, the report also said that Ted expressed an interest in buying Masson. Writes Yassine, I have really enjoyed your podcast. Thank you, Yassine. Continues Yassine. What the heck are the learners doing here? They complain about how unfair the Masson deal is endlessly, and yet they don't even care about their own team. Do they want to sell the team or keep it? Because staying uncertain or in the middle will lead that franchise to pure irrelevancy. 
in the DC market. The $2 billion offer from Ted is a fair deal. And if the learners think that their team is worth more than $2 billion, good luck, because now they have completely misread the market. As for Masson, it is in real peril. Masson recently couldn't renew its carriage deal with Spectrum Cable in the North Carolina area and has lost over 2 million cable subscribers over the past four years. Masson charges $3.60 per cable subscriber to all cable, satellite, and streaming providers. And note, DirecTV Streaming is the only streaming provider that carries Masson and Masson 2. Also, the Masson app is the worst sports streaming app ever because the live stream is literally two to three minutes behind the actual live feed on DirecTV. And the whole network, just like every Bally Sports RSN in America, is run on the cheap. It is clear that John Angelos is clueless on how to run an RSN. There's a good chance that Masson will be bought by Ted Leonsis pretty soon. And if I'm the learners and the Angeloses, I would entertain Leonsis's offer immediately. While Leonsis has run the Wizards into the ground, <laughs> he might provide one single dominant RSN that carries the Wizards, the Capitals, the Nats, and the O's, plus a streaming option for non-cable subscribers. Thank you. For the email you've seen, you know, my reaction to the learners not accepting Ted Leonsis' offer of a little more than $2 billion was exactly what Yassine's reaction was. And I talked about this on the podcast. And the reaction was, uh, what exactly do you want? Okay. Forbes, each of the last two years, March 2022 and March 2023, has valued the Nats as being worth $2 billion. The value of the Nats is lessened by this never-ending mass in dispute. An offer from Ted Leonsis of more than $2 billion for the Nats is a more than fair offer. Do the learners want to sell the Nats or don't they? Because I don't know that the learners are going to be getting a much better offer than $2 billion plus for the Nats. I mean, maybe the learners' patience will be rewarded here, and maybe the learners ultimately end up selling the Nats for, I don't know, $2.5 billion, okay? I mean, the learners are known for being good at grinding out negotiations and extracting every last nickel and dime out of a negotiation Uh, But, you know, (laughs) I don't know, man. This sale of the Nats has not gone the way that the learners have wanted, at least so far. But, you know, with the Masson dispute, there is so much to be thinking about. A, we have the actual dispute, which has been going on since 2012. B, we have the dispute happening as the learners are wanting to sell the Nats. C, We have the dispute happening in the midst of ownership uncertainty for the Orioles as we have had the intra-family feud for the Angeloses and we continue to have the patriarch of the Angelos family, Peter Angelos, in failing health and there for years has been a belief that when Peter passes, the Angelos family will sell the O's and D, we have what is happening with regional sports networks, with RSNs in general, their future being in serious doubt due to cord cutting. We have all of these things happening with the Masson dispute. If the Masson dispute was a Facebook relationship status, the status would be, it's complicated. Because it is complicated. Well, what's not complicated is what you should do if you have a case. The answer is easy. If you have a case, you should contact Paulson and Nace. 
Polson and Nace is a law firm that is dedicated to promoting the rights of seriously injured persons and their families. You can call Polson and Nace at 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Polson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is widely respected throughout Washington, D.C. and West Virginia for the firm's accomplishments both in and out of courtrooms. Chris Nace and Matt Nace, they are dedicated trial attorneys who do not balk in the face of large insurance companies or well-known businesses that have had practices or products that are directly related to the root of your harm. And by the way, a big congratulations to Chris Nace, who was just named the 2023 Barry J. Nace Trial Lawyer of the Year. Uh, This by the D.C. Trial Lawyers Association. Paulson and Nace does not accept low settlement offers that benefit the people who cause clients harm more than the offers benefit the clients. And this is because Paulson and Nace is not afraid to take a case to trial. And that's because Paulson and Nace wins trials. Paulson and Nace has secured millions of dollars in verdict and settlement amounts for clients to better enable them to care for themselves and their families. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wrong but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. Call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit PaulsonandNace.com. That's PaulsonandNace.com. Just make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, if you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Well, there is something almost ominous about us on the day of the first round of the 2023 NFL Draft having as a topic something negative with the player who the Redskins took in the first round of the 2020 NFL Draft. The commanders are not exercising the fifth-year option in the rookie contract of edge defender Chase Young. We learned of this via multiple reports on Wednesday morning. Uh, The option was for $17.452 million for the 2024 season. And the team not exercising the option now means that all six of the players listed as defensive ends by the commanders on their active roster are set to be free agents next offseason. Chase Young, Montez Sweat, F.A. Obata, James Smith-Williams, Casey Tuhill, and William Bradley King. That is wild when you think about it, although it is possible that the commanders will sign Montez Sweat to a contract extension this offseason. I hope that they do. What's funny to me about this Chase Young fifth-year option situation is this. Whether the commanders should have exercised the option really wasn't the issue, at least not to me. From my perspective, whether the commanders should have exercised the option was a debatable issue on which reasonable people could disagree. Like I said, the option was for $17.452 million for the 2024 season. That's good money to be sure, but that's also not like astronomical salary cap crippling money. If Chase Young plays at a high level, 
this coming season. Then $17.452 million for him for the 2024 season actually is a bargain. The more that I thought about the issue, the more that I did come to believe that the team should not exercise the option, but I would not have killed the team for exercising the option. The team knows Chase Young better than any of us do. So if the team felt that Chase physically was in a good place and trusted him to be the player he was drafted to be, and thus felt that exercising the option was a gamble worth taking with the potential payoff of having a great player at a bargain cost for another season, then I would have been okay with that approach. But the team very clearly does not feel this way. And this is where we get to what truly matters with the commanders not exercising the Chase Young fifth-year option. You start with this, an NFL team not exercising the fifth-year option for a first-round pick, let alone a number two overall pick, as Chase was in the 2020 draft, is an indictment of that pick, regardless of the reason for not exercising the option. Uh, There's no debating this. There's no disputing this. The idea with a first-round pick is that the fifth-year option should be a given. The fifth-year option is a tool for the team. The fifth-year option is not in place for the player. The fifth-year option is there for the team. The fifth-year option is a means of an NFL team obtaining a fifth year of team control over a good or even great player before he becomes eligible for unrestricted free agency. When an NFL team doesn't exercise the fifth-year option for a first-round pick, That is unequivocally an indictment of how things have gone with that pick. And things have not gone well for Washington with Chase Young. Uh, Put aside that, in hindsight, the Skins with that number two overall pick in the 2020 draft should have taken quarterback Justin Herbert. Or, you know, I guess at this point you could say quarterback Jalen Hurts or even quarterback Tua Tungavailoa. I'm not going to harp on all that because you can play the hindsight game with every NFL draft. The bottom line with Chase Young right now is that he, over his three NFL seasons, has had one good season. And that was his most distant season, his rookie season, which was great, but that was his rookie season. That was two seasons ago now. Chase for Washington has not been the player he was drafted to be. Now, why is that? Well, Chase Young, through no fault of his own, suffered devastating injury, right? A badly torn right knee that he suffered in the win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field on November 14th, 2021. Chase's injured right knee ended up being a lot worse than most people knew. First of all, he suffered a torn right ACL and MCL, and Chase, in a post-OTA practice press conference last June, first revealed that a graft from his left patellar tendon had been used for his right knee, and NFL insider Jordan Schultz last August 23rd tweeted that Chase's injured right leg also had included a, quote, fully ruptured patella, end quote. Uh, Remember, Chase in the 2022 regular season only played in three of the commander's 17 games. He ended up being on the reserve physically unable to perform list from August 23rd, 2022 to November 21st, 2022, nearly three full months. And then he was inactive for three consecutive games. It took Chase forever to finally make his season debut last season. Now, once he played, I thought that he actually looked pretty good. Uh, Chase, over his three games, registered an overall grade for pro football focus of 78.4. PFF grades are on a scale of 0 to 100. This was part of why I thought that the commanders might exercise 
the fifth-year option. Chase, all things considered, looked all right over his three games last season, especially in his first game. The loss at the San Francisco 49ers on Christmas Eve, Chase for that game was the highest-graded Commanders player for PFF. But Chase Young not having had a good season since his first NFL season isn't just about the badly injured right knee. Chase, prior to injuring the right knee, was having a really disappointing 2021 season, so much so that he got called out by head coach Rod Rivera. Ron, in a piece that came out on November 4th, 2021, on the team's official website, said regarding Chase Young and also Montez Sweat, quote, we would like to see a little bit more from those guys. They need to stop pressing and trust their teammates, end quote. Then Ron, in a post-practice press conference on November 8th, 2021, spent the bulk of the near 17-minute presser answering questions about Chase Young and being very upfront and specific about Chase's struggles and what he could do better. Remember this too, Ron, for much of that 2021 season, talked about concerns with the team's maturity. And as time went on, that seemed to be as much about Chase Young as anything. And then we have had the offseason stuff, right? Chase, who ended his 2020 rookie season as a team captain, did not attend any of Washington's OTA practices in the 2021 offseason. And know this, Washington in the 2021 offseason only had two weeks of OTA practices. That was it. May 25th through the 27th and June 1st through June 3rd. It's not like attending Washington's OTA practices in the 2021 offseason was some monumental ask, okay? And yet Chase did not attend any of those practices. Then last offseason, the 2022 offseason, uh, Chase did not attend the commander's first week of OTA practices, but he was in attendance during the team's second and third weeks of OTA practices. And then we had what we had in the lead up to this news on Wednesday morning of the commanders not exercising Chase's fifth year option. Rod Rivera and general manager Martin Mayhew having publicly expressed uncertainty over whether the team would exercise the option. Rod admitted that not exercising the option could serve as motivation for Chase. Forget about whether that's accurate or not. And forget about whether exercising the option is the right call or not. Why was the team so open publicly about its supposed uncertainty over this option? Who does that? What was that about? And I use the phrase supposed uncertainty because I never bought that Ron was uncertain about the option. I think that Ron knew a while ago what he was going to do with the option. I actually presumed that Ron was going to exercise the option because otherwise expressing uncertainty over whether the team should exercise the option and then not exercising the option seemed like a rather harsh, even embarrassing thing to do to Chase Young. (laughs) And yet that now is exactly what has happened. And this, to me, is the principal takeaway from the commanders not exercising the Chase Young fifth-year option. There's something off between Ron Rivera and Chase Young. There is a disconnect. We first saw signs of this during the 2021 season. Now we, this offseason, have had this bizarre public dangling of a fifth-year option that the team has ended up not exercising. Maybe Chase is hard to coach. Maybe Chase doesn't listen to Ron, 
Uh, heck, maybe Ron doesn't know how to talk to Chase, okay? This may not all be on Chase. I don't know. All I know is this. You're being naive if you think that all is well between Ron and Chase, and the team not exercising the fifth-year option is simply about Chase's right knee. Oh, he got hurt. That's why. There's more to it than that, okay? Don't get me wrong. The right knee is a big part of what's going on here, but there's more going on here than just the knee. I'm rooting for Chase Young. I hope that he has a great 2023 season, but clearly, His team has doubts about whether he's going to have a great 2023 season. Well, you should have no doubts about subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Uh, You can subscribe to the podcast via most platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. A subscription to the pod costs you nothing and makes sure that you never miss an episode. Uh, You want Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you want Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review can be just a sentence or two, can be more, but doesn't have to be. And thank you very much for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Well, the first round of the 2023 NFL Draft is on Thursday night. The Commanders have the number 16 overall pick. What are they going to do with that pick? What should they do with that pick? There is a lot out there regarding the NFL Draft. Uh, Something new this year is ESPN's NFL Draft Simulator, which allows you to play general manager for an NFL team and make picks through all seven rounds of the draft, if you like. Uh, Really cool stuff. You can access ESPN's NFL Draft Simulator by going to ESPNSportsAnalytics.com. Also at ESPNSportsAnalytics.com is ESPN's Draft Day Predictor, which for a second consecutive year is a publicly available tool. Uh, The Draft Day Predictor gives you percent chances of a number of top prospects in the 2023 draft being available at various spots and the likelihoods of those players being drafted at various spots. The Draft Day Predictor uses expert mock drafts, grades from Scouts Inc., and team needs as inputs to produce a range of selection outcomes for prospects in an NFL draft. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast, a man who was instrumental in the creations and developments of ESPN's Draft Day Predictor and NFL Draft Simulator. He is Brian Burke of ESPN Analytics. Uh, Brian is a true pioneer in the world of football analytics. He founded the website Advanced Football Analytics in 2006. Uh, He has developed a number of stats that now are common in football analytics. Brian created Air Yards, Brian created expected points added, or EPA. Brian created win rates. Brian created win probability. Uh, Brian has been instrumental in the development of ESPN's total QBR. And Brian is maybe most famous for advocating that NFL teams should be going forward on fourth downs far more often than teams were going forward on fourth downs years ago, long before going forward on fourth downs became popular. Uh, Brian was in the Navy for 15 years. He's from Baltimore and now resides in Virginia. You can follow Brian on Twitter at ESPN. Hey, Brian, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Al. We have had the draft day predictor for a few years now. Uh, tell us about the development of the NFL draft simulator, if you would. Yeah, so we we have this uh, draft day predictor. Um, we call it that so we can differentiate it from like player projections, how they're going to do once they hit the pros. So this this was a project I, I worked on. It was intended for teams like 10 years ago. Um, and then when COVID hit, 
we, at ESPN, we were kind of desperate for content. And I said, well, I have this, this old tool. Uh, you want to take a look at it? And they loved it. And it's been, it's been pretty good success. And it really is what it's like the back end to what like a, 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 a simulator could do. So it's, it's basically generating very scientifically all the numbers that a, you know, one of these ubiquitous draft simulators. Um, so we just decided to build our own. It's kind of a hole in ESPN's offering, I think. And no one even asked me to do it. I just said, hey, we need this. Let's, let's build one. That's awesome. So NFL teams are actually using things like the draft day predictor and NFL draft simulator? Well, I do know that not only NFL teams use versions of this, uh, but they other leagues with drafts also use the same tool. So I've helped build, uh, consult with some NBA teams uh, who wanted to build this. And, and um, so I think that's pretty cool. It's pretty much a draft is its own kind of sport. Uh, so once you've kind of modeled that sport, you can extend it to uh, any, any other sport. Very nice. Uh, so the Commanders have the number 16 overall pick on Thursday night. A lot of ways in which the team could go with that pick. Is there a most likely way, given what the draft day predictor has to say? Yeah, so the, the predictor you know, builds in uh, team needs. And right now, we, we show the Commanders with cornerback, guard, inside linebacker, and offensive tackle. Um, and, uh, so I think the most likely scenario is tackle. I think that is the most rich, uh, kind of position at the, at 16 for them. And there's a number of options. So there's basically four top tackles. And, uh, I think the chance that any one of those four will be available to them is, is very, very high. All right. And that is in line with what the general thinking has been. What does the draft day predictor have to say about the commander's second round pick, the number 47 overall pick? Yeah. So if they don't, let's say they go tackle in, uh, in the first round. So if you're looking at, say, like cornerback, uh, that could, you know, there's, there's a lot of talent in cornerback, I think, in that range. Um, but there's so many. Um, it, you know, so I can tell you how many. Uh, how many cornerbacks or which cornerbacks are likely to be available at um, 47. But um, you know, I'm dialing that up right now. Give me a moment. Okay. Yeah, so you've got um, – there's this very, very small chance. I mean, Forbes will be there. And then you've got uh, some kind of second-round projections, DJ Turner, uh, Keely Ringo, Cam Smith. One of those, uh, Julius Brent, Brent's one of those would be available to them at 47. The NFL draft simulator is interesting for a lot of reasons, including this idea of crowdsourcing, as there has been shown to be a wisdom in crowdsourcing, how when you have a number of people putting meaningful thought into predicting something, there's an intellect behind the prevailing prediction. Uh, we've actually seen this with the Sabermetric site, Fangraphs, and its crowdsource predicting of free agent contracts in Major League Baseball. Is there a prevailing outcome for the commanders with their number 16 overall pick via the NFL draft simulator? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've been looking at what users have been doing using the simulator. And so when users are, are picking as the commanders, it's at 16, it is an offensive tackle. So Broderick Jones uh, is most often than Paris Johnson Jr., Darnell Wright, than uh, Skaronsky. Um, but that's not necessarily their preference. That's just that's a combination of preference and availability. 
the commanders this NFL draft season reportedly have only welcomed one quarterback for a top 30 visit. Uh, that quarterback is Tennessee's Hendon Hooker. Now, uh, that may have been nothing more than a smokescreen, but the draft day predictor doesn't even list Hooker as a possibility for the commanders at 16, but does have him as potentially going to the commanders in the second round. Also has him potentially going to multiple other teams in the second round. Where do you think that Hendon Hooker ultimately will be selected? He's, he's a big wild card. So he's one of those where there's a, a wide variance. We don't know. Uh, the, the mocks have him going all over the place. Um, so I, I can't really nail down where he's going to go. I would bet he's, you know, bottom bottom first round, top second round pick. Um, but, uh, yeah, so with somebody like that, where there's such a wide uncertainty, it's really impossible to say. The, the way the predictor works is with quarterbacks, quarterbacks are really special positions. So we pretty much – uh, if, if a team is set, we call it set at quarterback. So if you're somebody, you know, with a, you know, Josh Allen's your quarterback or Patrick Mahomes, you're, you're, you're not drafting a quarterback in the first round. We kind of know that. The only chance that you're going to see a quarterback at that pick is if there's a trade. So we have that, but then we also have team need. So we have, we have Washington down as uh, not set at quarterback, certainly, and that, but quarterback is not a need either. So. Yeah. Uh, Washington has not been set at quarterback in many, many years. That's uh, been part of the problem. So the commanders are positioning Sam Howell to be their QB1 for the 2023 season. Took him in the fifth round of the 2022 draft off a stunning fall for him and off stunning falls for a number of other quarterbacks in that draft. I mean, the Pittsburgh Steelers took Kenny Pickett at 20 and then no other quarterback was taken until the Atlanta Falcons took Desmond Ritter at 74. What do you think of so many of the quarterbacks in last year's draft falling as they did? And how did the quarterbacks falling line up with what the draft day predictor had said? Yeah, no, um, it, it was it, the predictor was fairly accurate. I, I think we had like Willis going in the first round or something like that. Like one of the two quarterbacks were going to go in with, you know, Pickett and Willis, I think were the two. We were thinking one of them were going to go in the first round. And that was it, um, if I recall. And then, but yeah, last year was the weirdest year for uh, quarterbacks in a long, long time. I think who was the Florida State quarterback? Maybe it was like 2011 or something like that. It was was like the closest um, kind of comparison uh, where the quarterbacks just fell so far. Um, it's sort of like the, the anti-1983. That we're going to make a, a 30 for 30 about the uh, 2022 quarterback class. We're talking commanders and NFL draft with Brian Burke of ESPN Analytics. Uh, I feel like a lawyer asking a question of a witness while already knowing the answer to the question, but I'm interested in what you have to say about this. Texas running back Bijan Robinson. The commanders taking him in the first round has come up. The draft day predictor does have him as a likely top 10 pick. Where do you stand on an NFL team spending a first round pick on a running back, even one as gifted as Robinson? No, I think, you know, my fingerprints are all over this shift away from running backs um, in the first round. And, you know, analytics has, has kind of proven that out, that the running game is quite secondary to the to the passing game. And running backs themselves are sort of replaceable. They don't really move the needle. I mean, we haven't seen a running back lead a team to, to a Super Bowl since, like, Emmitt Smith, maybe. And that was, like, pretty... Um, salary cap um, era. Anyway, and it was his offensive line. It was really 
you know, I think there's like, you know, five out of five Hall of Famers on that line. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Bijan Roberts is actually the fifth most likely pick in the, in the, in the user simulator, um, uh, thing. So he's, he's getting picked slightly less often than, than Skaronsky, but I guess users are intrigued by him, I can tell. Yeah, and I certainly get the intrigue with Bijan Robinson, but I'm not in favor of the commanders taking him or any running back in the first round. Uh, maybe if they traded down and took him in the first round and at least got some more picks, that would make taking him in the first round more palatable. But uh, you are, in fact, against a team taking him in the first round. I would bottom of the first round is, is a different. Like I think people. Um, you know, fans, we think of like first round, second round. In a league, they just think of like pick number. So there's really no big distinction between pick number 31 and pick 33, even though they're, they're very different, um, you know, rounds, let's say, or they happen on different days. Even. So uh, I would say, yeah, bottom of the first, top of the second is where you would see, you know, a top end running back come off the board normally. I, I think, you know, the, the ratings on Robinson are, are so good that, um, you know, he might be an exception. But it's got to be the right fit. It's got to be the right team with not just a need at running back, but like a, a need and a fit. You know, he's a, he's a certain kind of running back. Um, so the Eagles, for example, could take him. Um, it, but people say he's not necessarily a fit to their offense. So, so we'll see. The Commanders trading down in the first round of the 2023 draft, as they did in the first round of the 2022 draft, uh, that is what I would most like to see them do on Thursday night. Generally speaking, trading down in NFL drafts is the way to go. Is that correct? Yes. Like, trading down is almost always a good idea. Uh, this goes back to uh, a study called the Massey Taylor uh, paper. If anybody out there wants to Google that Massey Taylor paper, it's a really interesting read. It's a research paper, kind of an economic standpoint. And you know, what they did was they, they looked at um, how teams trade and like the patterns with which they trade. And they, they looked at performance and how well these players uh, tend to uh, pan out in the pros. And the, the big takeaway are teams are supremely overconfident in their ability to uh, project which players are going to be better than others. So, for example, like the best, say, wide receiver, they're the top wide receiver taken in a draft, and you compare him to the second wide receiver taken in the draft, the chance that the first taken wide receiver will turn out to be better than the second is like barely over 50%. Wow. So, if you, so when tra trading down, you're really not giving away much in terms of kind of, um, you know, expected production or predicted production, but at the same time, you're collecting extra draft capital, uh, which which is always a good thing. As I mentioned, uh, you were instrumental in the development of ESPN's total QBR. Uh, when I had you on last April, I asked you about a new commander's quarterback at the time, Carson Wentz, having for the 2021 regular season ranked number nine among all qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in total QBR. Uh, well, here we are in April 2023, and the Commanders have a new quarterback, this time Jacoby Brissett, who's coming off a surprisingly high ranking in total QBR. Brissett for the 2022 regular season was number eight among all qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in total QBR. Now, <laughs> you in our conversation last year looked at Carson's total QBR ranking for the 2021 regular season rather skeptically. Uh, that turned out to be correct. 
Uh, what do you make of Brissett's total QBR ranking for the 2022 regular season? Yeah, so when we talked last year, I, you know, I talked about the big glaring flaw in QBR, which is that at the time QBR was built, we sort of viewed sacks as a uh, offensive line statistic. But, it, you know, since then, it's become clear that quarterbacks are really um, driving sack rate more than, than lines are. And so we give extra credit to quarterbacks who are getting a lot of pressure. Uh, but if you're the kind of quarterback that invades pressure, and Carson Wentz is kind of the, the, the poster child for that, um, then, then they're, they're actually getting a boost in QBR. They look better than they should. So I haven't, you know, I haven't, didn't look at, at Brissett's, uh, you know, film or anything. So I, I can't really say. Um, but yeah, QBR is also sort of, it's not a predictive thing. It's just telling, it's, the only way to think about it is, the best way to think about it is, it's just a much, much better version of the traditional passer rating. And so you know, there's a lot of reasons. There's this year-to-year volatility where, you know, quarterbacks can have a good year, down year. There's that, you know, who are their teammates, who's, who's playing around. QBR does a, you know, tries very hard to account for a lot of those things, but can't, can't fully account for them. So definitely a grain of salt on that top eight. Don't expect another kind of top 10. That shouldn't be your expectation. Um, now, now I'm starting to worry that, uh, you know, up in Ashburn, they're, they're taking, they're putting too much. (laughs) Well, there have been a lot of things going on in Ashburn in recent years that should not have been going on. So if total QBR is one of them, uh, that's one of the least of the problems. (laughs) I can tell you that, uh, total QBR is on a scale of zero to a hundred. The best total QBRs for college quarterbacks these days are in the high eighties and low and even mid nineties. Uh, the best total QBRs for NFL quarterbacks these days are in the 70s and maybe low 80s. Why is that? It's, it, there's just so there's a much bigger range of competition at college. You have very 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 good you know players playing against very very, very bad players. Um, and in the NFL, it's just a much much narrower range of, of talent basically. So that's pretty much it. The, the numbers the, Q, the number in QBR uh, has has meaning actually. It, it, what it represents is well, what would you expect uh, the winning percentage to be of this quarterback with all else held equal? Meaning like if he had an average defense, if he had an average offense around him, he was playing against an average schedule, how, what, what would the win percent be for the, for a team quarterback by this, this person? So like a 70 QBR is basically saying, hey, all else being average, the, this quarterback is going to lead you to a 700 winning percentage. Wow, that's interesting. I did not know that. Uh, one more thing on total QBR. ESPN's total QBR rankings go as far back as the 2006 season. We have seen football outsiders retroactively put together DVOA stats going as far back as the 1981 season. Is a similar project for total QBR possible, or is the requisite data just not available? It's, it's, it would be extremely difficult. So part of what powers QBR is actually uh, game charting. So we have what we call it VAT, uh, video analysis and tracking. And so that VAT is, um, is a human actually charting plays. So looking at whether or not the quarterback was under pressure, whether or not the ball was overthrown, underthrown, uh, all those sorts of things that you really can't get from statistics or from play-by-play. And th- those those are you know, critical ingredients to QBR. So uh, that was the long answer. The short answer is no. 
Uh, you created ESPN's win rate metrics, uh, the cratering of the commander's offensive line this past season was a huge problem. And the cratering came off the line having been quite good. Washington finished the 2021 regular season number nine in the NFL in ESPN's team pass block win rate and number one in the NFL in ESPN's team run block win rate. But the commanders finished the 2022 regular season number 27 in the NFL in ESPN's team pass block win rate and number 19 in the NFL in ESPN's team run block win rate. Just to be clear, the fact that the commanders for a good chunk of this past season had as their starting quarterback a guy in Carson Wentz who is known for holding on the balls for too long and for taking sacks Is that at all a potential factor in the team's pass block win rate having declined so much, or is the metric not impacted by the behavior of quarterbacks? The the entire intent of the metrics, the win rate metric and pass block especially, is not to be affected by the quarterbacks, to be independent of the quarterback. Um, There are exceptions, right? So if the quarterback's responsible for uh, calling protections or making adjustments and audibles at the line, and, and if, if the quarterback's either very good or not very good uh, at that, that's going to affect win rates. But otherwise, the way win rates work is it just it looks at who's blocking who. It uses the player tracking data, and, and it's pretty easy to tell on the tracking data who's blocking whom. And then if you get past your blocker, uh, if a pass rusher gets past his blocker within 2.5 seconds, that's uh, a pass rush win for the for the defender and a pass block loss, and so by by using that 2.5 second cutoff, we can um, pretty much make it independent of the quarterback. Um, it, it really great examples like Joe Thomas uh, on, on the Browns. So he had like atrocious pressures allowed and sacks allowed stats, but everybody knows he was like an all world player. Um, and I think the first year for the pass pass block win rate showed him as, you know, he might have been like 50th best tackle in sort of those conventional terms, but he was like the very best in, in pass block win rate because Deshaun Kaiser was his quarterback and he couldn't read the field and he couldn't get rid of the ball. So uh, I, I think it's a pretty accurate. It's not going to be perfect, um, but I think it's part of the, you know, part of the analysis. You know, you can look at that, look at the PFF grades, that sort of thing. Um, especially the, the drop off in run, right? Because that's definitely not uh, affected by by a quarterback. So, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, they were like number one by a mile in run block a couple of years ago, which was which was pretty impressive. It was. And then what the offensive line did this past season uh, was not so impressive. Uh, One more for you. You're maybe most famous for being one of the first people to say that NFL teams should be going forward on fourth downs far more often than teams were going forward on fourth downs. Where are we now with NFL teams going forward on fourth downs? Are we where we should be or do we still have a ways to go? I think we're halfway there. So when I started looking at this, you could estimate that teams were sort of forfeiting in a way about half a game or more a season. So one extra loss every other year, which is huge. Like if you were to pay a free agent uh, position player to come in, like a non-quarterback to come in and make that kind of impact on your team, he should be making, you know, like $20 million a year easily. Um, and so that was about half, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Now it's down to about a quarter of a win or 30, you know, 0.3 of a win uh, every season. So there's still plenty of low hanging fruit, 
But um, and even with teams that are known for being very analytically savvy, even they um, aren't doing the right thing. The, the, the coaches will say, well, these models don't take everything into account. Um, so that's why we're not going for it when your model says we should. But if that were true, they should be erring on the side of being more aggressive half the time uh, if they're taking all these other things into account, the models aren't taking into account. So there definitely is still some way to go. I think we're halfway there. But it's, it's exciting. It, it, analytics having such a positive impact, I think, on the viewing experience, uh, too, is like hey, you get a lot more exciting plays. You get a lot more passing. You get a lot more um, – you know, going for it on fourth down. Nobody likes to see, you know, kicks and punts and stuff all day. Fourth downs are like the most exciting play in the game. And so um, you know, it's sort of the opposite effect that uh, analytics has had on, on, on some other sports like uh, baseball. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, the aesthetic impact of analytics in baseball has not been good for that sport, but the opposite is true for football. The great Brian Burke of ESPN Analytics, a true pioneer in the world of football analytics. Brian, thanks a lot. All the best. Yeah, thanks, Al. Anytime. All right. Hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Brian Burke. I have a lot of respect for Brian. He saw the future of football when so few did. Of course, it is hard to see things when you have the sun in your eyes. (laughs) That's why you need a good pair of sunglasses, especially as we're now in spring and are approaching summer. And if you need a new pair of sunglasses or want a new pair of sunglasses, I have excellent news for you. Shady Rays, for listeners of this podcast, is offering a great deal. 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses at ShadyRays.com. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the promo code Al Galdi. Shady Rays sunglasses, they look good, they feel good. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world-class product that's affordable and durable with clear optics for whatever you're doing outside. And Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses. No questions asked. You can wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. And so take advantage of the special offer for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code Al Galdi for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Yes, 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. And get this, if you don't love your sunglasses, you can exchange them for sunglasses that you do love, or you can return your sunglasses for a full refund within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Shady Rays always has your back. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. That's ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Also, Shady Rays has donated over 20 million meals to fight hunger with Feeding America. Shady Rays look good and feel good. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So when it comes to our rebuilding nationals this season, there are five players on whom we should particularly focus. Uh, Shortstop, C.J. Abrams, catcher Kbert Ruiz, second baseman Luis Garcia, and starting pitchers Mackenzie Gore and Josiah Gray. Now, you know, those guys are not the only Nats who matter, but they are the Nats at the major league level who matter the most right now. The truth about this Nats season is that the outcomes of games don't matter nearly as much as the performances of those five players. And so you think about where we are with those five players so far. Abrams and Garcia have been good defensively, but not so good offensively. Uh, Ruiz has been solid, uh, but Gore and Gray right now are surging. And what is happening with Gore and Gray right now is really exciting. Josiah Gray in the Nats 5-0 win at the New York Mets on Tuesday night was good for a fourth consecutive start. And Mackenzie Gore on Wednesday night was outstanding. The Nats went at the Mets 4-1 in game two of a three-game series. The Nats now are 9-14 and and now have won four of their last five games and now have won back-to-back series. But the story of this game from a Nats perspective, without question, was Mackenzie Gore. So Mackenzie Gore, he was one of the six players and five prospects who the Nats acquired from the San Diego Padres in the mega trade of outfielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell uh, to the Padres last August 2nd, what was 2022 MLB trade deadline day. The Padres took Gore with the number three pick in the 2017 MLB draft. He entered the 2021 season as the number six prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. Mackenzie Gore has the potential to be an ace. But he ended up not pitching for the Nats at the major league level last season. He, at the time of being acquired by the Nats, was dealing with left elbow inflammation. And he, over four starts for AAA Rochester last September, actually didn't do so well. ERA of 525. Then came the 2023 exhibition season, during which Gore struggled, uh, although he did pitch well in his final exhibition start. Well, here we are now, and Mackenzie Gore has been very good, and he, on Wednesday night, was superb. One run in six innings with 10 strikeouts. He gave up just four hits, a triple, and three singles, and the triple really wasn't that bad. More on that in a bit. Uh, Gore issued two walks. He threw 101 pitches, 66 strikes, versus 35 balls. Mackenzie Gore on Wednesday night pitched like the ace. We know he can be, and we hope that he becomes. Uh, Let's just focus on the strikeouts, shall we? 
Uh, Gore on Wednesday night, like I said, 10 strikeouts. You know, Gore now over five starts this regular season has a strikeouts per nine innings of 11.67. That is the stuff of an ace. Uh, but the specifics of these strikeouts were just great. Gore in the bottom of the first strikeout, the Mets' number one batter, Brandon Nimmo, on three consecutive swings and misses. Gore in the bottom of the second recorded all three outs via strikeouts. Gore in the bottom of the fourth with a runner on first and two outs struck out Tommy Pham looking on a beautiful full count curveball. Uh, Gore in the bottom of the fifth with runners on first and second and one out struck out the Mets number two batter Starling Marte on four pitches getting him to swing and miss out of one two curveball. Gore in the bottom of the sixth with a runner on first and two outs struck out Tommy Pham looking on a one two curveball on what was Gore's 101st and final pitch of the game. Talk about ending on a high note. And who did that remind you of? Did that not remind you of the Nats' last true ace? And the current New York Met, in fact. A guy who has gotten himself into some trouble uh, with this uh, uh, suspension situation uh, he finds himself in. But Max Scherzer, right? Max used to do exactly that. End on a high note. End strong. End with a dramatic, meaningful strikeout. That's what Max used to do. That's what McKenzie did on Wednesday night. I'm not saying that Gore is Scherzer, okay? But did that not reek of peak Max Scherzer with the Nats? What Gore did on Wednesday night. Uh, as for the lone run that Gore allowed on Wednesday night, bottom of the third, uh, Gore gave up a first pitch leadoff opposite field triple by Eduardo Escobar on a ball that got by right fielder Lane Thomas. Uh, Thomas failed in his attempt at a sliding forward catch. The ball ended up rolling all the way to the wall. And so Escobar had a triple in what is his age 34 season. You know, so many triples are like this, are they not? Like, the triples aren't necessarily these well-struck, deeply hit balls. The triples instead are these balls that get misplayed by outfielders who aren't charged with errors, and so the batters end up getting triples. But anyway, we had that triple by Escobar, and then Gore gave up a two-out RBI single by Starling Marte to left center field to cut the Nats' lead to 2-1. Okay, fine. Okay, I think we can live with what happened in that bottom of the third, given everything else that happened with Mackenzie Gore on Wednesday night. What a job. Uh, here was Nats manager Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Wednesday night on Mackenzie Gore. When he can pound the strike zone, use his fastball, and throw strike one, um, he's going to be he's gonna be what he was today. He's very, very effective. I mean, he's got a lot of movement on his ball, um, but I was so proud of him just going out there and and trusting his fastball, keeping the ball down, and uh, and using it, and he did that. And you know, every now and then he threw a slider when he needed to. And uh, but he was good. He was real good. His curveball got a couple strikeouts as well. What did you see from that pitch? Yeah, like I said, you know, when 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 you're pounding the zone with your fastball, and then you can drop a curveball in there. I mean, it helps. You know, if you got to rely on your secondary pitches all the time, um, it's it's a it, you know it'll be a different at bat for the, for those hitters. So. Uh, I think the key today was strike one, uh, uh, throwing his fastball and, and using his breaking balls when he needs to. Hey, when you get a few amount of called strikes he did, both with the curve and fastball, what's that maybe tell you about like their sequencing together and what they're doing? The, no, it, it was it was awesome. Those two guys were on the same page today. You know, Kieber again d- did a great job. You know, uh, on, on keep, keeping these guys off balance. Um, it's tough. You know, pitch thrown in. You know, getting the ball inside. You know, throwing not afraid to throw the ball in there. Um, that's key. That's you know that was big. You know, so you know. Yeah, like I said, he uh, 
he did a, he did an unbelievable job today. He really, really did. Yeah, Mackenzie Gore on Wednesday night was tremendous. You know, he in each of his previous two starts had not been great. Uh, April twelfth, three two loss at the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, Gore lasted for just three and two-thirds innings, uh, during which he allowed two runs. Uh, He gave up four hits, all of which were singles, but he issued four walks. He did record six strikeouts, but the walks and the strikeouts drove up his pitch count to where he ended up throwing a ton of pitches. Gore, in that outing, ended up throwing 88 pitches over his three and two-thirds innings. And then April 19th, a 4 nothing loss to the Orioles at Nationals Park. Gore allowed three runs in six innings. He only gave up three hits, uh, but one was a two-run homer, also gave up two singles. His biggest problem was issuing four walks, but he also recorded seven strikeouts. So, you know, it's not like Gore had been wretched in each of his previous two starts, but he certainly had not been at his best in each of his previous two starts. Walks had been an issue for Gore. They were not on Wednesday night, and Gore very much has been a strikeout pitcher. Speaking of strikeout pitchers, reliever Hunter Harvey. What a job by him in this 4-1 Nats win at the Mets on Wednesday night. So three Nats relievers combined for three scoreless and hitless innings with five strikeouts. Uh, Carl Edwards Jr. lasted for just three batters. He began the bottom of the seventh by issuing back-to-back walks, did then record a ground out, but then got pulled from the game. And into the game came Hunter Harvey. He ended up tossing one and two-thirds perfect innings with three strikeouts. Harvey came into the game in the bottom of the seventh with runners on second and third, one out, and the Nats nursing a 3-1 lead. And he was dominant. Harvey struck out the Mets' number two batter, Starling Marte, on six pitches. And Harvey then struck out the Mets' number three batter, Francisco Lindor, on three consecutive swings and misses. The extent to which Harvey humbled Lindor was sky high, and then Harvey tossed a perfect bottom of the eight. Take a listen to this. <laughs> this cracked me up when I saw this. Hunter Harvey, in this appearance on Wednesday night, per StatCast, threw 13 four-seam fastballs. Those 13 four-seam fastballs averaged exactly 99 miles per hour. Understand, Hunter Harvey's four-seam fastball velocity didn't peak at 99 miles per hour. His average four-seam fastball velocity was 99 miles per hour. We know that Hunter Harvey throws hard, but geez, watching him do this and in such a high leverage spot as was on display in that bottom of the seventh really was something. Here was Davey Martinez during his post-game session with reporters on Wednesday night on Hunter Harvey. He was awesome. He was awesome. Um, I think he took some from from Mason yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I really did. I mean, you know, you know, we asked him. Uh, I mean, we I didn't even have to ask him. He's he's going back out. He said I'm going back out. So uh, it's beautiful. I mean, uh, and he's another one. You know, just powering the strike zone. Um, and some got some big outs for us. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say when the door's that late on that first pitch, and then he goes back to back splitters. Just um, what you just see. You know about that sequence. He goes, oh, man. It's like, you know, when, when his split is on like that, um, honestly, it me, me of his dad, you know, facing his dad like that, you know, 97 strike, and then whoop, whoop, and you were scratching your head going, man, you know, I mean, his sequence today was good. I tell you, interesting to hear Davey Martinez say that Hunter Harvey was pitching like his dad, uh, the former major league closer, Brian Harvey. But Yeah, Hunter Harvey is a flamethrower. He now, in this regular season, 10 games, 10 and a third innings, ERA of 261, a whip 
of less than one, 0.97, and a strikeouts per nine innings of 10.1. You know, we in the previous installment of the podcast talked about Nats reliever Mason Thompson. Who has been the Nats' best reliever so far this season, Thompson or Harvey? There's a conversation. I mean, each guy has been so good. Uh, And then we on Wednesday night had Kyle Finnegan closing things out, and he was just fine. He tossed a perfect bottom of the ninth with two strikeouts for the save. The Nats offense in this 4-1 win at the Mets on Wednesday night, uh, to me, actually was impressive. Not so much in the what, but in the how. So the Nats for the game, four runs, uh, eight hits, a home run, a double, and six singles. Seven walks, uh, three of 13 with runners in scoring position. Aside from the seven walks, the end-of-game totals don't blow you away. But what we had in this game from Nats batters were some beautiful two-strike plate appearances. The Nats process at the plate in this game was really good. Take, for example, Kbert Ruiz. So he on Wednesday night was the Nats starting catcher and number five batter, one for four with a single and a walk. So you say, all right, one for four with a single and a walk, that's fine. But you know, nobody's going to go crazy over that. Well, take a listen to the specifics of the single and the walk. Uh, Ruiz in the Nats, two-run second, a leadoff seven-pitch walk, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. And Ruiz in the top of the seventh, a two-out single to right field to conclude a nine-pitch plate appearance, dare I say a nine-pitch war, in which he was down at 1.12. So lengthy and so tedious (laughs) was this plate appearance that Ruiz actually flipped his bat after the single. Yes, we had the rare bat flip after a single. Uh, Jamer Candelario, he on Wednesday night was an ad starting third baseman and number three batter. One for five with two strikeouts, but the one was a solo home run. Uh, now, one of those strikeouts was brutal. Candelario in the top of the second with the bases loaded, two outs, and the Nats holding a 2-0 lead, uh, struck out swinging on four pitches. However, Candelario in the Nats, one run seventh, a one-out solo home run to right field for a 3-1 Nats lead, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. Another instance of good two-strike hitting from the Nats came from the ex-Met Dominic Smith, who, believe it or not, finally has an extra base hit. Here's how you know that things are going the Nats way in this series. Dom Smith got himself an extra base hit. It finally has happened. Uh, Smith on Wednesday night was the Nats starting first baseman and number six batter, one for five with a double and a couple of strikeouts. Uh, Smith in the Nats, two run second, a double to the right center field gap on a one-two pitch for his first extra base hit of this regular season. He had totaled zero extra base hits over his first 88 plate appearances, but he on Wednesday night got that double and on a one-two pitch and in a game at his former team, the Mets, and Smith then scored from second base on a C.J. Abrams opposite field RBI single through the left side of the infield on an aggressive send by Nats third base coach Gary DeSarcina, but the send worked out. Good hustle by Smith and a nice send by DeSarcina. Uh, C.J. Abrams, by the way, was the only Nat 
on Wednesday night uh, to have at least two hits. Uh, he is the Nats starting shortstop and number eight batter, two for four with the RBI single and another single. Uh, he did commit a fielding error, but as we have discussed, C.J. Abrams from a fielding perspective uh, has done a really nice job. But more good two-strike hitting by the Nats on Wednesday night. Alex Call, uh, he was an Nats starting left fielder and number one batter, one for four with a single a walk and three strikeouts. One of those strikeouts uh, was rather rough. Call in the top of the sixth with runners on second and third, two outs, and the Nats nursing a 2-1 lead, struck out swinging on five pitches, but call in the Nats one-run eighth, a two-out RBI single up the middle for a 4-1 Nats lead to conclude an eight-pitch plate appearance in which he was down at 1.12. Lane Thomas on Wednesday night, he was the Nats starting right fielder and number seven batter, one for three with an RBI infield single and a walk. Uh, Thomas in the top of the fourth, a leadoff seven-pitch walk despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Just a lot of good plate appearances by the Nats in this win at the Mets. So, you know, no one's going to be blown away by this Nationals offense. But at the same time, you still can admire some of the good things that do happen. And on Wednesday night, if you watch the game, you saw some good things happen, even though, like I said, the end of game totals uh, didn't necessarily overwhelm you. But Back-to-back wins for the Nats at the Mets. Game three for the Nats at the Mets is on Thursday night at 7-10. The ex-Met, Trevor Williams, will be the Nats' starting pitcher as the Nats will try for their first sweep of a series, any series, since August 2021. The Nats haven't swept the three-game series since June 2021 and haven't swept a road series of at least three games since August 2019. All of this can change on Thursday night. The 2023 MLB regular season now is four weeks old. Uh, The Orioles, through those four weeks, have twice as many wins as losses. Not bad for a team on which both the analytics projections and the Las Vegas over-under win totals were rather down. Uh, Long way to go in the season, obviously, but so far, so good for the O's. They beat the Boston Red Sox 6-2 at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Wednesday afternoon to take two or three games in the series and to get back to being Joe Angel in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. That is correct, Joe. The win column. Uh, the O's now have won 12 of their last 15 games. Uh, we on Wednesday afternoon had more good pitching for the O's. Tyler Wells did well. Uh, he was good for a second consecutive start. Two runs in five and two-thirds innings with seven strikeouts. He gave up just four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles. He issued just one walk. He threw 102 pitches, 68 strikes versus just 34 balls. So a two-to-one strikes-to-balls ratio, that's quite good. Uh, Wells was coming off a terrific start this past Friday night, the 2-1 walk-off win over the Detroit Tigers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, seven scoreless innings. He has been the Orioles' best starting pitcher so far this season. Wells now, in this regular season, five games, including four starts. His first game was an emergency relief appearance for injured starter Kyle Bradish, but Wells has an ERA of 279 and a whip of 0.72. Outstanding numbers. This was O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame press conference on Wednesday afternoon on Tyler Wells. Honestly, I didn't think he had his best stuff. I think this is the first time he's thrown 100 pitches in a long time. I just thought he's a real, he's a great competitor. 
and thought he tried to wiggle his way out of a lot of things, a lot of deep counts. Um, but that's a really good offensive club, and thought he willed his way the whole way, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I was really super excited for him. You know, only one walk. That's what he does best is he challenges guys and he throws strikes. Um, I know he was a little bit frustrated with his command throughout his outing, but uh, um, the competitor in him, um, I thought him got him through that, that outing. So how about that? For Brandon Hyde, Tyler Wells didn't have very good stuff, and yet he still allowed two runs in five and two-thirds innings with seven strikeouts and had a strikes-to-balls ratio of two to one. Uh, also, on Wednesday afternoon, more excellence from the Orioles' bullpen. Three Orioles relievers combined for three and a third scoreless innings with three strikeouts, and reliever Yanir Cano made Orioles history. He tossed one and two-thirds scoreless, hitless, and walkless innings. He did, however, issue a hit-by-pitch. So he finally did not retire a batter he faced, but he wound up tying the Orioles' record for most consecutive batters retired by a pitcher to begin a regular season. The record is 24, was set by reliever Fred Holdsworth in 1976, and now has been tied by Yanir Cano in 2023. The O's on April 14th recalled Cano from AAA Norfolk. They got Cano from the Minnesota Twins in the trade of closer Jorge Lopez to the Twins on MLB trade deadline day last August 2nd. And Cano has been great. And he on Wednesday afternoon was great again. A solid game for the Orioles offense. Six runs, 11 hits, one double and 10 singles, four walks. Ramona Rios is the Orioles starting third baseman and number eight batter. Four for four with an RBI single and three other singles as the O's continue to roll. They now have won five consecutive series. More from Brandon Hyde during his post-game press conference on Wednesday afternoon. I think we're doing a great job of, of being consistent every day, um, showing up at the park prepared. I think our coaches are doing a great job with that, of preparing these guys. Um, and I don't see us too up, too down. I see us at a really even keel. I think some of our veteran guys have a huge part of that. That's how Kyle Gibson and Adam Frazier are. And um, and I think our guys learned a lot from last year about the attitude of, in, in coming to the ballpark. And um, they've carried that into this year. Yes, they have. Uh, now, next up for the O's is a 10-game road trip, uh, beginning with a four-game series at the Detroit Tigers. Uh, game one, Thursday evening at 640. Kyle Gibson will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 560, will provide you with in-depth analysis of and reaction to whatever the commanders do on Thursday night in the first round of the 2023 NFL Draft. Big show for Friday. Uh, Also, on Friday's show, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles, and that's on Thursday night at 7.10 of Game 3 of a three-game series at the New York Mets. The O's on Thursday evening at 6.40 of Game 1 of a four-game series at the Detroit Tigers. Have a great rest of your Thursday. Enjoy the first round of the NFL Draft, and I'll talk to you on Friday. With the 17th pick in the 2017 NFL Draft, the Washington Redskins select 
Jonathan Allen, defensive end, Alabama. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.